Kids, I hope you have a wonderful time in the back. If you're remaining with us, I'd encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to continue our look at this uh, letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Um, But as you turn there, a question for you. Have you ever had what people call a eureka moment? Some people call it an aha moment. Some people call it an epiphany. It comes when we finally figure something out that we've been confused with or have been struggling with for uh, a bit of time. Did you know that the origin of this term comes from uh, 500 BC, something very long ago, uh, with a, a, a mathematician named Archimedes. And the story goes that Archimedes was given the responsibility of trying to figure out whether a crown was made from gold or not. And he couldn't figure out how to, to, to solve that problem until one day he's soaking in the bathroom, in the bathtub, and all of a sudden the answer comes to him. Uh, it has something to do with water and displacement and all that. But the answer comes to him, and so he jumps out of the bathtub. He runs through the town naked shouting, Eureka, I've found it. That's where that term came from. I bet you didn't know that before. Uh, psychologists have been trying to figure out how do we get these things? How do we get these eureka moments? What happens when the brain finally breaks through from all its confusion into some sort of insight? If you've ever tried to write something and you've had a hard time, you've faced this. Pastors, we sometimes come to passages on a Monday and we're completely dark and we hope for some eureka moment to come throughout the week. Um, And often those moments come when we least expect them. I don't know if that's true for you. Now we've got a colloquial image for this as well. And you've seen it in cartoons or in shows that when somebody has an epiphany or a eureka moment, what do they show? That little light bulb that goes off above their head. And that's supposed to signal the insight or the epiphany uh, when the light gets switched on and we figure out our problem. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul talks about a light that goes on. But it's not a little light, it's not a small light, it's a cosmic light when God's light shines into the darkness of our lives. And so we're gonna be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter four, verses one to six. And so may we attend to this wisdom of the Lord. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake." For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to worship, uh, the opportunity to 
remind our hearts the truth of the gospel, uh, that which truly matters in life. Um, We pray for our time in your word over the next few minutes that you would enlighten us, that the light of the gospel would shine in our hearts, Lord, and that we would experience you through your word. We're thankful that the Holy Spirit comes and does that, so we invite the Holy Spirit to come and to shed light on your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. So our passage this morning uh, starts with the word, therefore. And I've always been taught, whenever you see the word, therefore, you're supposed to ask the question, what is it there for? Uh, that's a good thing to remember. And it's true of the Bible as well. Whenever you come to the Bible and you see that word, therefore, you have to think of it as a connection. That, that the writer is saying, in light of everything that we've said before, now do this. Or in light of all that, now we are to do this. And so as we look at our passage this morning, it's, it's important to be reminded of what Paul has talked about thus far. We've seen how Paul wrote this letter to a troubled church uh, in the city of Corinth. He started his letter by talking about how God is a God of all comfort, especially for those who are experiencing all sorts of suffering. He then went on to talk about the aroma of Christ to God, essentially saying that, that followers of Jesus Christ bear the aroma of Christ in them. And that that aroma, that that smell of Jesus is polarizing. To some, it is the smell of life. And to others, it is the smell of death. If you were with us last week, we saw Paul tackling or rejecting this idea of a spiritual meritocracy. He encourages the the church in Corinth not to submit to old ways, but to always live in the glory of the new. And so then he finishes chapter three with a verse that's beautiful about beholding the glory of God. And as we behold God's glory, we are transformed day in and day out more and more into his image. He says, all of this is the ministry of God, the inbreaking of God's kingdom into our world. And so now we come to this therefore. Therefore, this ministry of God that we've spoken about before by the mercy of God Now, that ministry of God has a certain practice to it, it has a proclamation, and it's very personal. Rarely do I do alliteration with P's, but event just came this week. So Paul is talking about a practice, a proclamation, and something that is deeply personal. So let's start with that practice and look at verse 2. Paul writes, "We We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways... We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Well, what is Paul doing here? Well, Paul is calling out his opponents in this verse. Uh, If you've been with us, you'll know that there's an issue that is behind this book in 2 Corinthians, and that is that after Paul left the church in Corinth, after he planted it, Other leaders came in, they entered the church that Paul had planted, and they were subtly subverting his leadership with this young congregation. They were seeking to discredit Paul, they wanted to tarnish his reputation, they wanted to tarnish his message, and you get the sense that they were doing it for their own personal gain. Not to be servants to the church in Corinth, they were exploiting the church for their own personal gain. And so last week, we saw that Paul really attacks the message. 
that these leaders were teaching this church in Corinth. They were, Paul says they were captured by the old ways. They were living according to that spiritual meritocracy when something so much better had come along in Jesus. Paul says that Jesus brought a ministry of reconciliation, which is so much better than this ministry of condemnation. And so Paul talks to them and he says, stop living according to that old system. Stop living according to a pattern that doesn't bring any life, that doesn't bring any joy, it doesn't bring any hope. Stop trying to live by a system that at the end of the day is powerless to change you. It cannot change your heart. So Paul's really attacking that message that these rival opponents were spreading. But here Paul attacks or speaks against their methods. He calls their their methods disgraceful and underhanded. And he says they practice cunning and they tamper with God's word. So you got to imagine Paul's really throwing off the gloves here. He's getting real serious with what he is saying here. And if you keep with us, he will do so even more later in the book. So stay tuned for that. But what this section is for us is it's a great reminder that certainly what we say is very important. But how we say those things and often the motives that are behind those things as well can be very important. And it's important for us to consider it. I was thinking about this a lot this week because uh, for years, American churches, American pastors have always wanted to grow their churches, right? We all want to grow our churches a bit. We want more people to come in contact with God's word and we want to see God's word transform our culture. And so what a lot of pastors do, myself includes, you go to these conferences at times. These are church growth conference and they bring in these experts and they have all sorts of tips and all sorts of uh, suggestions for you as a church on, on how you ought to grow the church. And a lot of it's really good. But often they say things like, well, you need to, as a church, grow your social media footprint. You got to post on Instagram or Facebook at least four or five times a day. Uh, they'll say you need to, to change the environment in which you worship in. Make that environment look non-threatening. Make your church look like a bar or make it look like a coffee shop so that when people walk in, they won't feel very threatened. They'll talk about things like branding strategies and, and flashy promotional campaigns. And uh, all those things are good and well. They're things that are worthwhile to consider. I can remember one year I had somebody come up to me and say, you know, if you really want to grow your church, this is what you got to do. You've got to, you, Patrick, need to, to promote yourself more. And, and uh, he suggested, well-meaning, he suggested, do you know if, if www.patrick.com is, is still an available domain site? Because if it is, you should go and snag it. Because the more you can market yourself as a pastor, the more your church will grow. I've often thought about that over the years, and I suppose a lot of these things aren't necessarily bad, but there can be an inherent danger in all of these things. Because if we're always trying to, to tweak and perfect our methods, it becomes very easy to tamper subtly with God's word. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if, if our job is to make the message more palatable, for the consumer, then by nature, we will tend to uh, subtract some of the more hard or offensive things that we see in God's word. 
Now we could talk about this all day, but I just mentioned this because that's a bit about what Paul's opponents are doing here. They had in Paul's day, a very flashy leadership style with slick presentations. They were riveting speakers. They could gather people and draw a crowd. They believed you could apply the business growth models of, of businesses around. And if you just applied that model to the church, everything would be a great. But at the end of the day, Paul says, it became more about them than it did about the truth. In the end, the word of God was tampered with. Paul refused to do this. As one commentator said, he refused to adulterate the gospel, which I think is an accurate term for what Paul is saying here. Instead, Paul says, he said this later in the letter, he, Paul says, he behaved in the world with simplicity and with godly sincerity. That's Paul's method. It's simplicity, it's sincerity, it's honesty, it's faithfulness to the truth. And you know what? It doesn't sound like much. In our culture, in our world, doesn't sound like much, doesn't sound very effective, but Paul was absolutely content to lead the church in this way. Why? Here's why. Paul recognized where the true power for all this truly comes from. It does, the power doesn't come from larger than life personalities. It doesn't come from slick media campaigns, branding strategies. The power comes in the proclamation. The power comes in the proclamation. For look at verse five. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. If you remember back in the book of Romans, Paul calls the proclamation of the gospel, he uses the word powerful, but it's where we get the word dynamite from. So when we proclaim the gospel, it's like we're setting off dynamite. And when that dynamite is set off, it explodes in people's hearts. It explodes into people's lives and it changes every single thing about him. And so the methods might not be all that important, but because the power isn't necessarily in the method, it is in the proclamation. And the illustration that Paul uses here in our passage is a beautiful one. The, he doesn't use the word dynamite here. Instead, he talks about the power of light to dispel darkness. And I want you to walk with me a little bit as we think through this, this beautiful illustration that Paul uses here. Uh, just this week, Wednesday night, uh, I was driving one of my daughters somewhere, and it was just me and one of my daughters, which is rare in our situation. But it was just the two of us, and we were driving along. It was 6 o'clock at night, and so it was past dusk. And I don't know if you remember this Wednesday night, but the moon rose in the sky and it was still low in the sky right around six o'clock. And it was massive. It was huge in the sky. And it had this sort of spooky Halloween orange color to it. And we were remarking at how beautiful the moon was. And I was up early the next morning and looked up in the sky and there the moon was again. But instead of being big and orange, this time it was small, but it was so bright you couldn't even look at it. And I remember having a conversation with my daughter that, that the moon doesn't have any light in and of itself. The moon only reflects the light that is from the sun. And we were talking about just how amazingly powerful the light from the sun was. So, take, so think about that and take a moment to think about the last time you were awake uh, when the sun rose in the morning. Uh, maybe you were at the beach and you could really see it. 
But you know early in the morning when the sun's about to rise, you see the evidence of that light before you actually see the, the sun itself. And the, the skies start to light up. In the fall, often those skies are really beautiful and uh, the, the stars start to disappear. You won't see the moon as much anymore. And then the sun comes over the horizon. It creeps over the horizon and it's so bright you can't even look at it. It's chasing all of the darkness away. This is the image that Paul wants us to think about because the darkness in a sunrise has no ability to push back to the light of the sun. The darkness has no power to withstand that light. And so take those images and then think back to Genesis chapter one, where you read about the creation of the world, where it says in the third verse in the Bible, and God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. And think about the sheer power of that moment in creation. God spoke out of nothing. God proclaimed something and the power of light exploded over this new creation. So think about all those images and now think that that same power is unleashed through the proclamation of God's truth in the gospel, that same power. The gospel tells us our hearts were darkened, that the gods of this world had blinded our hearts and that you and I, each one of us were born lost in that darkness, lost in the darkness of sin and death. And because of that, we see the world incorrectly. We're lost in the shadows. We're groping around in the dark. But then in the gospel, in God, in Jesus, the light switches on. The light switches on. This isn't a soft luminescence. This isn't mild uh, ambiance. This is the light of the gospel with the same power of that light of creation. The darkness is helpless to resist it and it brings life in the place of death. Friends, I know that as we think about our culture and our world, our own hearts, all of that together, it is easy to feel that the darkness is really dark. I think that's probably accurate. The darkness is really dark. We live in a dark world and the gods of the world around us feel very strong. But what Paul reminds us is that they are no match for the light of the gospel. No match whatsoever. The darkness, it might be able to resist a social media campaign or a branding strategy or something along those lines but the darkness cannot resist the light of God shining through the proclamation of the gospel. And so what an encouragement that's been to me as a pastor, what an encouragement that's been to all of us, that if all we have is a pinch of sincerity and a little dab of simplicity, if you combine that with the power of the gospel, it is way more than enough to transform hearts and to transform our world. So there's so much to see here, but there's one last thing I want us to see. As servants of God, of course, how we minister, the practice is important. The what, the proclamation is important, the simple message of the gospel. But for Paul, I think all of this is deeply personal as well. All of it's deeply personal. Look at verse six one more time. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, I believe when Paul's writing these words, this isn't just some high in the sky theological concept he wants to communicate, but this is deeply personal to his story, 
It's deeply personal to his story. If you know anything about Paul, you'll know he was a religious zealot. He was more religious than you and I are. He was a religious zealot. He had the best training, the finest upbringing, and he cared so much about his faith that he actively resisted anyone who would say anything to the contrary, and that included Christians. It included Christians. Hardest thing about folks like this, these religious zealots, is that they believe they're righteous in doing the things that they do. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Paul didn't hunt down Christians in his early life because he was bloodthirsty or because he was power hungry or even because he probably particularly liked violence. He hunted Christians because he believed it was the right thing to do. He believed that that is the very thing that God called him to do. But what do we know? His heart was blinded. His heart was blinded by the darkness and he didn't even realize it. See, that's the scary thing about spiritual blindness. Most of us are blissfully unaware that we're living within it. Remember that verse in Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And so how many folks do we know that are on that road that leads to death, totally lost in darkness, totally blind to the truth, all the while believing that they are living on the correct path? But again, remember Paul's story. He's traveling from town to town. He's, he's hunting Christians. He's doing it because he believes it's the righteous and right thing to do. He's riding on the road to Damascus and what happens? Now, as he went on his way, Acts tells us, he approached Damascus and suddenly a what shone from heaven? A light from heaven shone all around him. Paul falls to the ground. The light was so bright that it blinded him for a certain period of time. And so all this business of light and darkness, this isn't just a handy illustration for Paul. This was personal. This was real. Paul walked in darkness until he saw a great light. Isaiah chapter 9, the people walked in darkness till they have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shown. So perhaps one of the most profound questions we could really ask ourselves is, are we walking in darkness? Are we walking on a path that that just feels so right, but in the end, it leads to death? Are we dwelling in a land of deep darkness? And if so, then see, see the light of the gospel. Have your life transformed by it. But friends, those of us that are servants of Jesus, as Paul talks about here, We have seen the light. It has shone into our hearts. And so Paul wants us to reflect that light. Just as that moon I mentioned before was reflecting the light of the power of the sun, Christians are called to reflect that light, to reflect that glory to everyone we rub shoulders with day in and day out. Doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't, certainly doesn't have to be flashy because its power is revealed in simplicity and in sincerity. Its power is laid bare as we make it personal to our own lives and our own stories. It is the power to shine light into darkness. Now, one last thing about light that's so beautiful. Light just doesn't dispel darkness, but light dispels fear. 
Light dispels fear. Think about it. It's, it's, it's Halloween, right? And so all the horror movies are on TV now. And I've, I don't watch horror movies, but some people love them. But what do you see in horror movies? They're always dark, right? And in the darkness is where fear lives. It's where fear dwells. Just remember back to when you were, in a kid, you were a kid and you were in a dark room and every shadow looked like a monster. And you, every creek was a monster living under your bed or living in a closet. And then what did your parents do? They came in, they plugged in a flashlight, they flipped that soft little light on and all of a sudden you realize that's not a monster in a corner, that's a coat rack, right? That's not a monster hiding underneath my bed. That's my baseball bat or whatever it is. What happened? Light came in and it chased away all of your fears. Now think about those shepherds in Luke chapter two. We'll get to this in a couple months when we get to Christmas, but they're in the middle of the night. It's dark out. They're tending their sheep. All of a sudden, the, 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 the sky lights up with the angels of God who have come to announce the birth of Jesus Christ. And what does it say was the shepherds' reaction? They were scared to death. And so what were the first words out of the mouth of those angels? Fear not. Fear not. And so are you fearful? Does the darkness of your life at times fill you with fear about what might be coming right around the corner of your life? Well, let the light of the gospel in. Let the light of the gospel illuminate your hearts, bring life, and dispel all of your fears. Let's pray.